For the week of December 15th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Week in Review. This week we talk all about Doug Jones' big win in Alabama and what that might mean for the Democrats, the Republicans, and for Trump. And then we talk about the current state of the GOP tax bill. I am your host, Stephen Cox. I am joined this week by the founder of Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Chris Petzold. Hello, Chris Hi there. So we both saw the new Star Wars film yesterday separately, The Last Jedi. Uh, I will just stipulate up front, no spoilers, uh, so everybody can rest assured. But uh, what were what were generally your impressions? I'm a big Star Wars fan, so I really yeah. liked the film. Um, and I thought that uh, the special effects were great and the stories, there's many stories in there, uh, were great. Um, and I was especially impressed by... Uh, the the leading role, the tough leading roles of women in the film. Yeah, you know, I was really impressed by Daisy Ridley in The Force Awakens, and I was also really into the fact that they had put a female protagonist in there, and I think that was probably in response to a lot of the outcry that came from the first three films that said, and by the first three, of course, I mean the ones that came out uh, in 77, 1980, and 83, respectively, that there just weren't any female characters in there. There were like, one could assume that there were like, you know, three women in the entire galaxy. So it seems like they've, uh, yeah. Exactly. It was it was just great to see. Yeah, it, it really was. Also, I love Oscar Isaac, uh, and I, I think it's actually particularly hilarious that there seems to be a part of space that uh, generates people with New York accents. But that was that's awesome. <laughs> it's quite possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's the Scottish part of space where uh, mm-hmm. Domhnall Gleeson comes from. And, uh, oh, and Laura Dern <laughs> should always have lavender hair. So, I, Absolutely. Yeah. I loved it. So, historic win on Tuesday night. Uh, as we know, Alabama elected its first Democrat in 25 years. Uh, and I should point out that the last Democrat was Richard Shelby, who is now the senior senator from Alabama and is now a Republican. He switched parties in the uh, in 1994 when the Republicans uh, took over both houses of Congress. Um, I will uh, also point out, just for fun, that this is Jeff Sessions' old seat. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh so I am curious uh, what your Tuesday night was like. Um, for my part, I had actually decided that I wasn't going to watch the election results because at that point there was nothing I can do about it. And I just decided I didn't need the, the angst. And uh, then we got a text from a friend saying that Doug Jones had won and it was celebration time uh, at the house here. Well, what was How did it go for you on Tuesday? Well, I was on an indivisible conference call. We had kind of a, a meeting by conference call on Tuesday. Um, I had one eye on the TV and one eye on the on the call that I was on. And uh, it was just a really topsy-turvy night. I was having flashbacks and not in a good way from mm. the November 2016 election. Um, and even though we had Virginia under our belts, I was just – I was not uh, – uh, I was not feeling positive about it. Um, so it was very much a surprise and I was very excited. Um, and so moving from that indivisible conference call, I joined, um, some of my indivisible friends. We have a kind of a coalition built here across the eighth and we have a group chat going on all the time. And we've convened there for all the major votes, like the, the last, uh, midnight vote, against the ACA repeal where uh, John McCain did the big thumbs down. We were all on a chat together oh, wow. um, and we were, and we were all there the, the other night on Tuesday night too. 
um, just celebrating and, you know, just woohooing the whole time. So it was great. Well, you know, I want to get into some of the ramifications of the win, kind of all the way around in terms of what it means for the grassroots community, in terms of what it means for Democrats, in terms of what it means for the Republicans. Um and I, I think I want to start by talking about what was maybe the biggest takeaway of the night, and that was the importance of the African-American vote. Um, I don't know if you caught this, but Charles Barkley, who was actually there at Doug Jones headquarters, said that there is a lesson for Democrats here, and that is to better address the needs of minorities and poor people. As specifically, he said, quote, it is time for them, meaning the Democratic Party, to get off their ass and start making life better for black folks and people who are poor. How, how does that resonate with you? Is this a wake up call for, for the Democrats? What, what should Democrats take away from this election in regard to the African-American vote, do you think? I certainly hope it's a wake-up call. I mean, I am just so proud of everything that uh, everyone down in Alabama did. Um, this was has monumental consequences um, for our entire country, and um, I think that was why it was so hard to watch because it was just completely out of my hands. You know, I couldn't, I can't vote, um, and so uh, I'm just so proud, and I really hope that it is a turning point um, where people start um, taking a look at those underserved populations. And um, there were so many uh, organizations working together on the ground down there. And I don't know, isn't this a saying that when, that, that when we fight, we win? And we certainly did fight um, down there. And this was in the face of tremendous systemic uh voter suppression efforts tar targeting those African-American people um, right. there. And, um, you know, uh, they've done things like in Alabama, like uh, requiring ID while at the same time, uh, I looked this up today, while at the same time closing 31 driver's license offices uh, in counties where African-Americans... couldn't Americans, be more blatant. Yeah, yeah, yeah where the, the population is 70% black, um, they close all the ID the places where you get the ID. Um, and so uh, it, it was just a tremendous win, win for the country, but most importantly for um, African-American communities. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I want to talk about the role of women in this election. Uh, but since we're talking about the African-American vote, there was an African-American woman uh, who was actually, she's a sharecropper in Alabama who was driving people to the polls, right? Yeah, she was a, a former sharecropper, thank goodness, uh, and she's been working for the past 25 years to get people to the polls in Alabama. Her name was is Perman Hardy, um, and I saw her on the news. Uh, just an inspirational look at, you know, the lengths to which people will work to get out the vote down there. Well, uh, and you were alluding to this earlier, and I, let's do talk about the role of women in this election, um, mm -hmm. uh, because Republican pollster Whit Ayers pointed out that uh, the elections in Alabama and Virginia show, quote, college-educated suburban women in the South turning against Trump. Uh, and this is very substantial to me because the majority of white women in the United States supported Trump in 2016. So in your mind, what does this election say to you about how Democrats Democrats should be thinking about women voters in, say, 2018, 2020, particularly in how to bring more women into the Democratic fold? Well, I think that we need to focus on um, 
issues. Uh, so those, those, I don't know what they're called kitchen table issues that, that women care about. Um, and, and that's what, that's one of the ways that we can come together uh, across different political spectrums is just by focusing on what the issues that that women, moms, families, what we all care about, what everyday people care about. I think that's one way. Um, and then just in general, uh, I think that women are feeling more empowered to step forward, to run for office. Yeah. Uh, they see this Me Too movement. I, I Sorry, I keep talking about it, um, but I think it should be continued to be talked about for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just it's this wave of of bravery and stepping forward in every way, and I can only hope that this translates into more women uh, voting uh, for their interests instead of against their interests. Finally, yeah. Well, so okay, just moving on to what this might mean for the Democrats more generally in a political sense. Uh, a lot of commentators at this point have been predicting a Democratic wave in 2018, just based on the overwhelming numbers that we've seen uh, in these last two elections in Virginia and then also in Alabama. And also, when you think about how much Democrats were able to eat away at a lot of the margins in some of the special elections around the country in places like Georgia and Oklahoma and Montana and others where Democrats generally don't they, – they often do so poorly in areas like that that the Democrats haven't even really fielded a, a candidate in the past. Um, I'll just uh, throw out some poll numbers here, which I thought were very interesting. A Monmouth poll has generic Democrats running against Republican incumbents up 15 points. Um, and even Paul Ryan seems to be seeing the writing on the wall and is talking about leaving after he's uh, – you know, well, done screwing over the vast majority of tax-paying Americans. Uh, and, Do we uh, dare dream? Well, yeah, I, I don't know. More, <laughs> more, more on him in a little bit. But uh, so with Jones winning in Alabama, this is what is, is particularly interesting, I think, to a lot of Democrats. The Senate is now officially in play for 2018. Mm -hmm. I mean, the math is still hard. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, so there are 26 Democratic Senate seats on the ballot and 10 are in states that Trump won. So uh, they're going to need to hold all of their incumbents and they're going to need to pick up two and then they will be up 51-49. The, the path to taking the House back is much more direct, particularly with races like the one in, say, Washington's 8th District. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm wondering, does this embolden Democratic candidates in red states? Doug Jones was a quality candidate. Um, and we've talked about him uh, on I, I believe we talked about him last week and just what an, an impressive figure he was. He's a mm -hmm. civil rights attorney who uh, successfully prosecuted Ku Klux Klan members who had uh, bombed a church and killed uh, four young girls. I'm mm -hmm. wondering, does this election in your mind send a message to other potentially quality candidates that it is now uh, not necessarily a lost cause to run as a Democrat in red states or even red districts? Absolutely. I mean, the fact that we were all shamefully worried about Doug Jones not winning against an alleged child molester, I mean, that is that is so disgusting. But now that we have that win... Um, and we have that wind at our backs. Let's just use that uh, to embolden Democrats all across the country. And, you know, even here in Washington, we had some amazing candidates this past uh, fall who who 
um, like Michelle Rylands in the 31st, who didn't win, but she ran an amazing campaign and caught the attention of a lot of voters down in that district. And uh, I think it can only continue. And I'm specifically uh, looking forward to seeing what happens in Kathy McMorris Rogers uh, district, because I think she's vulnerable. Time. Absolutely. And part of the reason for that is because Lisa Brown, former state Senate majority leader, is going to be running against her. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the grassroots side of things, this is certainly putting a lot of wind in people's sails. Uh, I, for one, was in a, a very good mood when I woke up uh, after the election for the first time in many months. Uh, how do we in the activist community build on the momentum of this win, do you think? Well, I think there's a tremendous amount that we've learned from these past few elections. We just keep learning more every time. And Indivisible um, particularly is getting um, better and better and stronger and stronger. And um, I was doing some reading on Alabama and those groups down there. I just give them a huge shout out um, for what they've been doing. Um, I read that five Indivisible groups knocked on 2,500 doors to get out the vote. Um, And one of the things that Indivisible got for them was access to the voter file and other tools and infrastructure that they could use um, on the ground there locally. Um, And, you know, across the across the nation we did our part to help out in Alabama too we we um, sent uh, postcards and texts so 1500 volunteers sent 242,000 texts texts to people in Alabama to try to get out the vote so I think that uh, uh, activists we we have a lot more tools in our tool chest now and um, we have a lot more organization I'm I am actually really excited now. Yeah. And I think everybody should be. All right. So I want to talk about a couple of things that are happening in the Senate. Uh, The first is that McConnell is refusing to seat Doug Jones in time for a vote on the tax bill. Um, That is something else that we'll get to in a bit. And, you know, it might be a a moot point anyway, since the Alabama Election Board is now saying that they're not going to be able to certify the results of the election until after Christmas. And the GOP is working overtime to get this thing jammed through. Um, I know that Indivisible was pushing McConnell on this, using his own words against him from when he wanted Scott Brown seated in order to vote against Obamacare. Um, Talk about that a little bit. I think this is hypocrisy at its finest. Um, And we need to make sure that people across the country really understand what's happening here. I mean, uh, McConnell is is doing exactly what he was calling out um, when Scott Brown was going to be seated. He said that the American people have spoken um, and we needed to get Scott Brown in there to be able to uh, vote against the Affordable Care Act back then. Well, fast forward however many years it's been and it's the same exact situation and he's just up to dirty politics. I cannot wait to see that guy go. <laughs> yeah, well, you and me both. And actually, and I've made this point before, but I feel like Republicans are fairly immune to their own hypocrisy. But in terms of Ray Moore, do you get the sense that a fair number of Republicans were actually relieved that Moore lost? I mean, he would have been a wild card in terms of voting because he certainly uh, owed nothing to the Republicans. He's no friend of the Republican establishment. And Mm -hmm. he probably would have been an albatross for the party generally. How How do you read that? I don't know. I'm so cynical about uh, McConnell and the other Republicans. I mean, McConnell did nothing to stop it. He may have said 
a couple things, but like he has a pack and all kinds of tools at his disposal that he could have used to prevent the vote from being as close as it was. Um, so I don't know. One would hope that they would have the decency to be worried about that, but uh, I'm not sure. Well, the uh, the GOP and Trump are assuming that this seat is going to go back to the Republicans in 2020, and they're probably right, uh, though you, you never know right now. I don't know. You, you, you just keep doing you, Donald J. Trump. Uh, and just, yeah, so let's talk about Trump and all of this. Uh, first, mm-hmm. I, I want to point out that he managed to endorse two losing candidates in one election. So that was a neat trick. Um, he also managed to say uh, the next morning that he predicted the loss in Alabama and that you need to run electable candidates to win, which kind of sounds an awful lot like what McConnell was directing at Steve Bannon verbatim uh, and more on that guy in a moment. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, as much as I hate to admit Trump is right about anything, I, I think he probably was right about Luther Strange. I mean, if Strange had been the candidate, he probably would have won and certainly running a sexual predator slash pedophile is probably not putting your best foot forward. Um, But how much of this in your mind is due to the Trump effect? Do you read the Alabama election as a referendum on Trump writ large? Yes, I do. Um, And, you know, he certainly still has his uh, cult following him. um, But I think that everyone is really starting to see the cracks uh, in the veneer there um, and really starting to see the chaos that he's creating in our country, um, supporting a, a pedophile um, for, for a congressional seat is just the latest manifestation. So, yeah, I think it's definitely a, a referendum on Trump. Um, he, you know, <laughs> he certainly did uh, work to uh, get pe- get people out who haven't been voting lately. So uh, out to the polls. So <laughs> on the so. other side of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can move on from all of this uh, <laughs> after this. But but for me, here's a sixty four thousand dollar question. Does this election show that even though Trump still manages to defy the laws of political gravity almost daily, that those laws still apply to everybody else? In other words, does this show that even in the deep red South, you can't be a sexual predator and a pedophile and get elected to the Senate just because you're a Republican? What do you what do you make of that? I hope so. But given how close the vote was, um, the jury's still out on that on that question for me. I mean, you see that uh, the white vote was over 60 percent for the child molester. So that is that's disgusting, embarrassing to me as a white person. <laughs> yes, likewise. <laughs> Absolutely for me uh, as well. All right. We will shift over now and talk about the newly reconciled tax bill, which uh, as of Friday, the GOP Senate is indicating that it now has the votes to pass with Corker and Rubio folding. Oh, Marco Rubio, you stand for absolutely nothing. Uh, So what is still in it? Uh, It still repeals the individual mandate. It rolls back the SALT deductions. It gets rid of the estate tax. Oh, and it also allows for drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Now, there is enough insanely unpopular stuff in this bill that a Marist poll says that 60 percent of Americans expect it only to help the wealthy, and 52 percent said they believed it would hurt them and their families. It is so unpopular that, as I mentioned earlier, Paul Ryan is weighing retirement. What do you make of that? 
he's smart. Mm. <laughs> he's got to get out before uh, he has to face the consequences when people uh, realize what this is either done to them or will do to them. Um, it is, it's crazy. Uh, I think I heard something on um, uh, Pod Save America about how he's got to uh, distance himself from Trump. Um, he's got to go on the lecture circuit to pay for his kid's college, and then he'll jump back in in time for 2020 um, and a new president. So uh, it's just, he, he's he's got it figured out, I think. Oh, man. Wow. I, I <laughs> had it in my mind that he was actually going to take his retirement package from the House after he had done his damage uh, and then take a consulting job for probably, you know, seven plus figures a year and kind of ride it off into the sunset, having done the bidding of his corporate overlords. But uh, your view of that seems a lot more plausible in my mind. Um, but you I know, think he's just trying to wait out Trump. Well, yeah. And and speaking of waiting out, I think a lot of this might be a gamble that by the time the real pain of this tax bill sets in, because a lot of these things don't actually trigger until after 2018, the Democrats mm-hmm. will likely be in charge and will likely get a lot of the blame. How do you see that playing out? Hopefully the Democrats can um, start on legislation to undo some of this mess right away. And they can clearly point out um, that where all of this is coming from. Um, So hopefully we'll be able to be organized and on message uh, such that the attribution for who actually created this mess will be squarely on the people who are now gone um, at that point. Ideally so. Well, and (laughs) even Indivisible at this point is kind of saying it's pretty late in the fourth quarter. All is not lost, uh, but it's getting kind of late in the game. Uh, You've been discussing something called a people's filibuster. Tell us what that is. Well, uh, so a filibuster is is something that happens, you know, in Congress where they um, delay the vote and they speak on the floor before a vote happens. You probably you probably remember um, when what's his name Ted Cruz read Green Eggs and Ham on the uh-huh. on the floor. That was great. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, so uh, what we're planning to do is we know that um, our congressman here in Washington's eighth district probably won't be doing any filibustering on our behalf to stop this tax bill. So we're going to do it for him. Um, and we've got a coalition built of groups from uh, around the area to come um, to a city hall here locally and uh, do a people's filibuster where we're just going to um, start talking um, as soon as the the vote is announced until the vote actually happens. For my part, I'm going to read the 25th Amendment over and over and over. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we are just going to fight until the very end um, to make sure that we know that we did everything we could to stop this terrible bill. And that's happening in Issaquah? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, all City right. Hall. All right. I will post up some information about that when it becomes available. All right. Uh, well, that'll do it for this Week in Review for the week of December 15th, 2017. As always, for more information about the show, head over to IndivisiblePodcast.org and subscribe while you're there. The email address is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you, Chris Petzold. Thank you. And thanks as always to all of you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.